would ask if you would open your Bible to John chapter 6. I think we can all say together that the world needs Jesus. We are right when we say that he is the answer to everything that is wrong in the world. We preach his gospel in hope that he will bless those efforts and change the hearts of men through conversion. The world, again, needs Jesus. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. Many of us sit here this morning having believed on Jesus to the saving of our souls. And we need more of him. No doubt that's what Peter had in mind when he wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. He says his desire for the church there was to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. To him be, both, to him be glory both now and forever. Amen. So he defines for us there in a roundabout way what it means to grow in grace. To grow in grace means that we grow in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. To grow in grace means that we know more and more, day by day, week by week, year after year of Jesus than we have prior. And so we plead for this growth in grace. We ask the helper to come alongside of us and instruct us and teach us. And we're told in the scripture that the spirit has come to magnify the things of Christ, to make known the things of Christ. He is here to glorify Christ. And the one chief way that he does that is to open our eyes wider and wider to who Jesus is and what he has done to show us how well suited Jesus is for sinners like us. I'm going to quote R.C. Sproul here. He says, nearly every adult person has formed some opinion of who Jesus is. And that's true of everyone in the room this morning. Every adult has some understanding of who Jesus is. Some of those, R.C. Sproul goes on to say, may be superficial. Some may be uninformed by the scriptures and others are downright heretical. Much of the heresy, if not all heresy, stems from being wrong on who Jesus is. It is the truth about Jesus that matters, and this truth matters throughout all eternity. This truth about Jesus is communicated in the Gospel of John in certain places unlike it is in any other place. The Scriptures speak so clearly about who Jesus is. The Scriptures speak so clearly about what Jesus has done. The scriptures are very pointed. The Gospel of John is very pointed in seven places, though some would consider eight or nine, we're going to stick to seven, where Jesus says very clearly and very plainly, I am, and then he gives a description of himself. We're going to look at the first of those this morning in John chapter 6, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In time and in future weeks, we're going to see where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. 
I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And it's my hope and prayer for us all as we go through these sayings of Jesus that we will all grow in grace through growing in our understanding of Him. It is very dangerous to be at a place in your life where you consider yourself as one who knows everything there is to know about Jesus. That's impossible. That's utter folly. To think that you have nothing else to know or to learn about the Son of God. Rather, in hopes to please God and to glorify Him, we're coming humbly to His Word, seeking to understand what Jesus has said about Himself, what He has said powerfully concerning Himself. We're praying again that the Spirit would take these things and make them known to us. You recognize the name Jonathan Edwards, famous for many things, most notably perhaps for preaching the sermon entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which sparked a great awakening here on this continent. He said, and I think he's right, that men of all types and kinds are naturally drawn toward beauty. You see something beautiful, and you're drawn to it. You want to, want, you want to know more about it. You want to know everything that there is to know about this thing. And he sought, Jonathan Edwards did, in his preaching to present Christ in all of his glory and in all of his beauty. And these are his words. He says, It is the sight of the divine beauty of Christ that bows the will and draws the hearts of men. Everything that is lovely in God is made lovely in Christ. And everything that is or can be lovely in man is in him. For he is, a man, for he is man as well as God, and as such he is the holiest, meekest, most humble, and in every way the most excellent man that there ever was. Jonathan Edwards, being the great theologian he was, would say to have a, have a view of the divine attributes of God alone many times overwhelms men. You can think of Isaiah, woe is me, I am undone. But to see Christ for who he is in beauty, there is something that compels us to come to him. There is something that, that wants to reach out to him, even as he is making himself known. And I hope as we go throughout these seven sayings of Jesus that the beauty of Christ is made more and more real. And that we can understand exactly what he is saying to us. So I want to read a lengthy portion of John chapter 6, beginning in verse 22. I'm going to read down through verse 50. So if you will follow along as I read. Let me give you the context of what we'll read. This comes just after Jesus performs the miracle of feeding the 5,000. And these first words that we're going to read in verse 22 reveal their true motive for seeking Him. They want more, but it's not knowledge that they're after. They want more to eat. They want their bellies to be filled again. 
And Jesus understands that. And it's in the midst of that coming that he makes himself known as the bread of life. So if you'll follow along in verse 22. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats also came from Tiberias, near the place where they had ate bread, after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered, said, answered them and said, most assuredly, we're going to read this, this phrase a couple of times. It's the verily, verily of the King James or the truly, truly of the New American Standard or in its original, it's simply amen, amen. So Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me. Not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up the last day. Then the Jews complained about him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. 
he has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. What we've read there in those verses, some of the most tremendous words from Jesus declaring who he is and his willingness to make himself known. And that's one of the things that we often don't appreciate enough and express our thanksgiving to God enough for. All of these marvelous passages of Scripture that tell us in great detail and in in great depth who Jesus is. I want you to look with me first, beginning back in verse 22, at what I'm going to call a superficial seeking of Jesus. No doubt this group of people had sought out Jesus. They had gone to some trouble to seek him out. They had crossed the sea. They had walked, asked questions. Finally, they find him. And when they find him, they simply say to him, Rabbi, which is teacher, which gives us some insight into how they viewed Jesus. They would have referred to many of the Pharisees and the scribes, members of the Sanhedrin, as rabbi. When did you get here? When did you come here? And Jesus, as he always does in the Gospels, and as he always has and always will, knows the heart of men. He knows why we say the things we do. He knows why we believe the things we do. There is nothing secret nor hidden from him. And he says to them, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs. Now remember, we didn't read this part, but just the first half of John chapter 6 is Jesus feeding the multitudes with a few loaves and a few fish. Certainly they would have seen that with their physical eye. They would have even partaken of the food. That is the reason, after all, that they have sought Jesus out again. Their bellies were filled yesterday. They're hungry now. And so they've sought him out, hoping that he will perform the same thing. But Jesus says to them something astounding. He says, you saw the sign, or excuse me, you did not see the sign. He's referring to seeing with a spiritual eye or understanding what the meaning of the sign was, that it was pointing to his power and his ability to provide. Jesus says, you're not here seeking me out because you saw this, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. This crowd sought Jesus out for the same reason Many people seek out an unbiblical Jesus today. There is a world of hurt around us, isn't there? There is disease. There is sickness. There is poverty. There is homelessness. And a dozen of other things that we could bring out. 
And upon hearing the name of Jesus, many will search him out so that one or more or perhaps all of those things might be righted in their life. That corresponds to what we're reading right here. A superficial seeking of Jesus. Seeking Jesus only to have a temporal need met. A worldly provision. To be cured of some disease. But not to be, not to be cured of the disease of sin. To come to him on their own terms. Not on his terms. To come seeking something from him but not accepting the greatest thing that he offers. To be spiritually blinded. Jesus says, you didn't see the sign. And then he tells them again, verse 27, something that they misunderstand. Why? Because the natural man cannot discern the things of God. Jesus speaks plainly to them, but it's as if it goes right over their head, in one ear perhaps and out the other. Jesus says, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. Because God the Father has set his seal on him. And in that sense, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is specifically set aside by the Father for this work. The seal of God is upon him in this ministry of redemption. But even though Jesus plainly said to them, I will give this to you. All that they heard was what Jesus said in the first part of verse 27 about laboring for food. About working for food. So they asked the question in verse 28, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? This is the natural inclination of every man and woman ever born. In your natural condition, you want to do something to earn the favor of God. The scandal of the gospel is this. Jesus has done everything. You come empty-handed. You come with nothing more than simple faith and trust that He is everything And he has accomplished everything. So this question again reveals the true motive. What can we do that we may work the works of God? And with great wisdom, expressing a great truth, with great force and power, Jesus replies to this and he says to them, this is the work of God. That you believe in him whom he sent. That's the work. That's all you have to do. That is all that Jesus requires. That is all that the Father in heaven requires. There is no listing of works to secure your own salvation. Save this one. Believe. And this dull of hearing crowd says to him, What sign will you perform then? Now remember, 
He had just performed one of the greatest miracles recorded, feeding 5,000 people with a few loaves and fish. They were party to that. They received that. But yet they asked him again, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe? What work will you do? The natural man wants a sign at every turn. But it, it is the pronouncement of Jesus at the end of this Gospel of John, chapter 29. He speaks to Thomas and he said, Thomas, you believe because you see me. You see the wounds. But Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. I trust and pray and hope to God that we're amongst that number who are believing yet not seeing, living by faith and not by sight. The second thing that Jesus does here is to clear up their misunderstanding of Old Testament typology. Typology is a word I'm using intentionally. I want to give it a definition. Typology in the Old Testament is something that prefigures or foreshadows the ministry of Christ as he would come later. You think of all of the sacrificial system, all of those sacrifices, the perfect, unblemished, spotless lambs that were to be brought and sacrificed before God. All of those prefigured and were types of who Jesus would actually be. When God himself provided himself a lamb, the words that Abraham spoke to his son, all of those types and prefigurements and shadows of the Old Testament were perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. But like so many still, these types and shadows were misunderstood. And that's what we're reading here in verse 31. The people declare, our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And you remember that account. You can go back to Exodus 16. You can read how the people grumbled and complained against God. And they said to Moses, oh, how I wish we would have just died in Egypt. At least we were sitting beside Pots of meat. At least we had something to eat. You brought us out into this wilderness and we're all going to perish here because of hunger. And so God in great mercy, but also in a prefigurement of what he would do fully in Christ, he gave them manna from heaven to eat. And notice, Moses' only part in that was to dole out the instructions on how it should be gathered And that's it. He had no role in it at all. But I think the implication is here when this group quotes in verse 31, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. In their minds, they're referring to Moses. At least that's the way Jesus interprets it because he clears up this misunderstanding. 
Jesus replies to their assertion that they were given bread from heaven to eat by saying, Verily, verily, I say to you, in all truth I am telling you, Moses did not give you, notice what he says, the bread from heaven. If you go back to Exodus 16, there is just talk of bread from heaven. If you go to the quote here in verse 31, there is just talk of bread from heaven. Jesus, I think, intentionally says to them in responding to their question, Moses did not give you the bread. He gave you bread, all right. Actually, my father gave it to you. Moses just gave you instructions. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Not to be overly simplistic, but just to state the obvious, bread sustained the wandering people of God in the old covenant. It sustained them physically. It nourished their physical body. It is what kept them alive even while they were living under the judgment of God. That in itself is a mercy, isn't it not? You remember they were wandering in the wilderness, waiting for all of them to die of a certain generation, and yet God was feeding them the whole time. Because He's good. He's gracious. So the comparison being made here from manna that came from heaven and the bread from heaven is being made. Jesus says, my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You may have noticed as we read through this section that Jesus emphasizes often, almost to the point of redundancy, that he has come down from heaven. Over and over again, he's saying that, I have come down from heaven. I have come down from heaven. And we can't help but think of that passage where Paul opens up to us the humiliation of Christ, where he sets aside the glory that he had with the Father from eternity past. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He was not clutching and holding on to that aspect of his Godhead. But he set it aside. Jesus says, I came down from heaven. That's important because later he applies this to himself as being the one who would ascend back into heaven. And he says, no one has ascended save for he who has first descended into the lower parts of the earth. And so there is a peculiar nature of the descent of Jesus from heaven that is tied to his ascending back into heaven. And here Jesus says, I alone am the one who has come down from heaven as the bread of God that gives life to the world. What is their natural response? Remember, they're hungry. They hadn't eaten since yesterday. And they've traveled some distance. It's probably hot out. Their stomachs are growling and they hear Jesus speaking about this true bread that gives life. 
And they're thinking to themselves, man, the bread yesterday was good. How can he make it any better? And so they say to him, give us this bread always. In fact, they preface it by saying, Lord, give us this bread always. They want to live their lives hunger free. Never having to labor for the food which perishes. To have a ready supply of bread just like their fathers had in the wilderness that, that mysteriously fell from heaven every morning. All they had to do was go out and gather. That's what they're after. To be cared for and provided of God's according to an earthly or temporal provision. And it's on this desire that Jesus says to them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. It doesn't come across in English, but if you were to, if you were to read a Greek study, which is all I've done, it comes across this way. It's Jesus saying, I, even I am the bread of life. So that there would be no confusion and also in the minds of an astute Jew who was, a, who was knowledgeable of the Old Testament, in their minds there might be the relationship of when God revealed himself as the I am. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the bread of life. And then he says, he who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Now notice what Jesus has already said and some things he will say here shortly about himself being the bread of life. Notice he doesn't say, though the implication is here, and he will say it in some, some other place, but he says, I am the bread, not just of heaven, but of life. I am the bread of life. Implying, eat this bread and you will live. But also necessarily implying, if you don't eat this bread and this bread only, you will die. You see the exclusivity of the claims of Jesus. And as we go through these seven sayings of Jesus, each one of them are just this exclusive. Jesus leaves no room for another Savior. He leaves no door open for another way of salvation. Jesus declares in all seven of these sayings that He alone is the Son of God who has the authority to make this claim that I, even I, here being the bread of life. He first of all said back in the previous verse that this is the true bread from heaven. There is nothing false, nothing vain, nothing pass, passing, nothing futile in His being the bread from heaven. But in verse 35, he says, he who comes to me. Don't miss the, those words. You must come to Jesus to receive the benefit and the spiritual nourishment of his being the bread of life.
He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me, and so we see the equation there, coming to Jesus and believing in Jesus are the same. He who comes shall never hunger. He who believes shall never thirst. What a promise here is made by Christ. You will never be spiritually hungry or thirsty again if you will take into yourself the bread of life, if you will come to him. Verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Think of the privilege of these who are standing before Jesus as he makes this claim about himself, but also as they had been the very ones who had eaten the bread that he blessed the day before. Think of the great privileged position that they find themselves in. Jesus says, you've seen me, but you're not believing. And we wonder why people can hear the gospel over and over and over and over and over again and not respond. The reasons, perhaps, given in verse 37... All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. You have to love how these two things are put together. Jesus says, those the Father gives me will come. He gives all of the attention to the Father's work. But in the same breath, in the same verse, He says, and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. So there is the work of a sovereign God and the responsibility of men at play in this verse again. You're going to find that tension all throughout the scriptures. You can't get away from it. You can't deny it. All you can do is bow humbly in submission to it. It is the the revelation of God. All the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes I will by no means cast out. For I have, here it is again, come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This doesn't mean that the Father and that Christ have two separate wills. Some have interpreted it that way. All this means, all this is is showing us is that Jesus is willingly submitting to the will of his Father. It's his great desire to do the will of him who sent me. And then he says twice what the will of the Father is. Very clearly in verse 39. This is the will of the Father who sent me. That of all he has given me, I should lose nothing but raise it up the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me. That everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up the last day. You see what He's done again? He's taken the attention given to the Father's work in salvation. He's attached it to the responsibility of a person to believe, and He's presented it as one message. 
And he's prefaced both by saying, this is the will of the Father who sent me. What's the response of hearing such great truth? Well, verse 41 tells us they complained. They murmured. They grumbled. Because Jesus said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Now, please notice the reason they responded this way. The reason they responded this way is given in verse 42 when they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? There's a warning submerged in these verses. The warning is this. Familiarity with a temporal or earthly Jesus breeds contempt. What do I mean by that? To be familiar with Jesus as the world defines Him breeds contempt for Him. To only know anything of Jesus, what you have learned from the world around you and not the scriptures breeds contempt in your life. Here is the Son of God openly declaring before them who He is and what they're falling back on is their knowledge of who He is based on an earthly sense. This is Jesus, Joseph's son, grew up in a carpenter shop. His mother, we know. His sisters, we know. His brothers, we know. How can He make this claim? That's the danger. To be overly familiar with Jesus as the world defines Him will make you contemptuous to Him. We must believe what He makes known about Himself in the Scriptures. And you can make this application to all persons of the Godhead. You and I are not left unto ourselves to define who God is or how He does what He does, why He has willed what He has willed. We can't detract from the attributes that He has made known, nor can we add to them. The same applies to the Son of God. We have to believe what He says and believe what He says alone. So after they murmur and complain against Jesus, He says to them in verse 43 again, Do not murmur among yourselves. And then he drops this bomb of truth on them. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up in the last day. Two words I want you to notice of great importance in this this verse. No one can. That speaks to ability. That speaks to power. And what does Jesus say? You can't. Thank God for the other word. (laughs) The other word is unless. Left unto yourself, you can't. 
unless the Father who sent me draws him. The mysterious work of God in the heart of man drawing into himself the scriptures say he does this with cords of love and mercy no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up the last day it is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught of God To be taught of God is equated here with what Jesus would say three chapters prior to Nicodemus. You must be born again. You must be born from above. There must be the the working and the activity of God in your life. They shall all be taught of God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, rewind, go back up to verse 32 and following. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. Skip down now to the verse we just read. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen him. And for the third time, Jesus says, Most assuredly, verily, verily, I say to you, He who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. And they're dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven. I think this is the fourth time. He's belabored the point that has come down from heaven. That one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread. Which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Twice in these verses, Jesus says, you have to eat this bread. How do you do that? We're going to read further here in just a moment, but this caused great confusion. The disciples called this a hard saying. And because of it, some walked away from Jesus. You eat this bread from heaven. Let me rephrase that. You eat the bread from heaven. With teeth of faith, trust, and belief. Just as the manna in the wilderness went into the mouth, was chewed, swallowed, went into the stomach, and there nourished the body. That's the type. That's the shadow. By faith, we internalize, if that helps, 
who Jesus is and spiritually we swallow the truth that he has just made known and the result not just a few hours of fulfillment but eternal life Jesus says I am the true bread I've come down from heaven. I give true life to the world, resulting in no hunger or thirst ever again. But you must come and eat. Will you? Would you pray with me? Father, we come, we realize that Jesus has made the claim that He is the bread of life. There is no other. There is no other true bread, no other living bread that satisfies the needs of the soul. All else is vanity. All else leaves us in the same state in which we came, empty, hollow. Father, I pray that you would give us this ability, that you would draw us unto yourself, that we might see the signs, that we might take and eat of Christ. Father, help us now as we turn our attention to observing this ordinance that you have given us, which perfectly symbolizes eating the bread of life. We pray that it would have real meaning for us. We do it as an act of worship. We do it also for our own good in obedience to you. And we do it in Christ's name. Amen.